It was uh, January 19th, the year 2000. My wife was expecting our first child. His name is Caleb. And about 7.30 that night, she went into labor. We were all excited. Of course, I'm a young man. I'm terrified and scared at the same time. We get to the hospital, and about 12 hours later, she's still in labor. So now she's been in labor all night long. And little did we know that she'd be in labor for another almost 12 hours. So about 23 hours worth of labor. I felt so sorry for her. I didn't know what to do, you know. I mean, I, I was helping her with the whole Lamaze breathing stuff, but that's all I knew. And I just, it was either that or watch the Braves game. I just was, felt so helpless, you know. And so we're just standing there in Kennesaw, Georgia, in this hospital. And my wife, after 23 hours of labor, the doctor says, all right, it's time, we need to do an emergency C-section. Now, I'd been a nervous wreck, but at that point, I was real nervous. I thought, man, this, what's, gonna, what's gonna happen now? So they wheel us down in this operating room, and the doctor and the nurse looked at me and they said, you can wait outside for a few moments while we get her ready for this surgery. And I'm thinking, good grief, man, all of a sudden everything's just happening, right? So I find myself in this little side room all by myself in this chair with my head against the wall. I'm 30 years old, I'm a young man, I've never been through this of course, and I'm a nervous wreck. And I'm thinking of all the tragedies or circumstances that could come as a result of something going wrong. But more than that, I guess it was just this calm spirit that came over me and it was like the Holy Spirit was just sorta giving me a little moment of rest before the chaos began. A little stillness before the storm. And I needed those few moments just to catch my breath before I walked into that operating room. Well, thankfully everything went well. Caleb was a big baby, nine pounds, seven ounces, which is the reason my poor wife was in labor so long, because she's not a big girl at all. And so after that, and reading these passages now, I look at this, the way this passage opens in chapter eight, verse one, and it made me think of that moment. And it's really the calm before the chaos. Pastor Jonathan left off with this verse last week. Look at it with me, chapter eight, verse one. And when he opened the seventh seal, remember Pastor Jonathan went through all seven seals last week, but at the opening of the seventh seal, there's silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Can you just picture that moment? It's the calm before the chaos begins. No angelic voices chanting holy, holy, holy. No singing from the voices from saints who've gone before us. No joyous jingling of bells or brass. No praise, no music, no laughter, just silence. Now up until that moment, there's been a lot of noise going on in heaven. Lots of praise, lots of prayers, lots of calamities. We've seen how one fourth of the world's population has already been destroyed by the opening of the fourth seal. There's lots of things that's happened, but in this moment, it's just silence. Because at the opening of the seventh seal, it really marks the beginning of the end. Because you see, the seventh seal is going to usher in the seven trumpets of judgment. And that's when things get pretty bad. You know, you, you've heard the statement, well, it can't get any worse. Well, yeah, yeah it can. Yeah. And it's about to. 
So before we get into the seven trumpets, let's just look at our timeline here that we've had for you at the back of the screen here and, and just remember where we've come from, all right? We started, of course, in chapter one, verse one, John's vision, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what I love about the first chapter of Revelation is it just reminds John, look, you knew me as the incarnate God. You knew me as a physical body on earth as my disciple, but now you're going to see who I really am, King of kings and Lord of lords the God of the universe. So that first chapter sort of begins that revelation of Jesus Christ, and then of course he addressed the seven churches uh, before he gives them a little prophecy and, and, and a little performance review in chapters two and three. And then of course last week, Pastor Jonathan reminded us of the seven seals of the tribulation and took us halfway through the tribulation and, and, and the unveiling of the future plan. And also, of course, we spent chapters four and five in the throne room of God. Uh, in, in that wonderful, incredible time of worship there. You find in the book of Revelation that periodically there's a little praise break that happens. There's calamity, there's horror, there's terror, then there's praise. Interesting combination, isn't it? So that brings us to chapter eight, and today we're gonna look at chapters eight, nine, 10, and part of 11. I know it's a lot of material. I'm gonna try to speak slowly and calmly, but uh, I probably won't. <laughs> Uh, did you know that 90% of the book of Revelation is either references or quotes or idioms from the Old Testament? 90%. So most of what you see in the book of Revelation, you've already seen in the Old Testament. But did you also know that 25% of all scripture is prophetic language? And that's why I've been convicted this week that, man, if one-fourth of the Bible is about prophecy, perhaps I should study it a little bit more often. So it really is worth studying this great book. Now let's look at verse two where John says in his vision, I saw seven angels who stand before God and to them were given seven trumpets. And then another angel having a golden censer or an, an incense burner came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. We've seen this happening a little, a little bit in chapter five verse eight as well. It's the prayers of the people of God like a smoke from incense that goes up into the nostrils of God and it blesses him. And as a result, he passes judgment on the earth. He hears the prayers of his people. And that's just a good reminder to all of us. God hears your prayers. He always hears the prayers of his people. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, prayer is an action of finite sinful humans that in some amazing and mysterious ways moves into action a sovereign and omnipotent God. I cannot explain it but I do believe it. Don't ever stop praying, people, because as your prayers ascend, God responds, you see, and that's exactly what's happening here. So now look at verse six. We begin the, the trumpet sound. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. All right, now before we get into exactly what these trumpets are gonna do, I wanna just give you a little more general information. Most of all today, I want you to see, perhaps more than any other thing that I teach you today, is that not at one single solitary moment in all of this, in all of it, at no point is God out of control. Absolutely every single second, God is in control and he's orchestrating and managing and allowing all of this stuff to happen. He's fully in charge and he's overseeing it all, okay? So even though it may look like things are a little out of control, I assure you, all of it's being orchestrated and run and managed by God Almighty. Now, the first four trumpets have to do with natural disasters. 
So in response to the prayers of God's people, God begins to rain down mass destruction using elements of his own creation. Have you noticed that we're seeing a lot of numbers so far in the book of Revelation? Do you notice that? Numbers like four, four angels, four horses, numbers like 24 elders. And then you see in these chapters a whole lot of sevens. Uh, seven is a number of complete lists. So you see seven churches, you see seven seals, you see seven trumpets, you see seven key people, you see seven bowls of judgment. There's a pattern here. You also see the number three used a lot. The number three stands for harmony and, and new life and completeness. Seven is also a number of completeness. You will also hear several things in the book of Revelation that sound familiar to you because the destruction that the trumpets bring are very similar to the very plagues of Israel, I mean of Egypt that God sent through Moses. Do you remember that? So there's a difference between natural disasters like hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes and the like and specific judgments of God. Now, we all experience a natural disaster or two in our lifetime, haven't we? You ever been through a tornado? That's a terrifying experience. Maybe you lived in Florida and had a hurricane pass through. Felt like we were in a hurricane all week in Lynchburg, didn't it? But catastrophic disasters that God sends are on a whole nother level. I remember one night, I thought the apocalypse was happening. I was in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, where they have some of the wildest weather you've ever experienced in your life. I was in this hotel doing a conference, and I'll never forget this. It started with an earthquake. I thought somebody was driving a Mack truck through the lobby of the hotel. The whole place was shaking, and later I find out it was an earthquake. Well, after that came this terrific thunderstorm like I've never experienced in my life. Right after that came hail, like big, big drops of, like this big golf ball-sized hail. And then right after that came a tornado, all on the same night. I thought, I will never live in Oklahoma City as long as I live. But all of that pales in comparison to what these trumpets are going to bring. These are specific judgments directly from God, one right after the other, and all of them incredibly severe. So God now is beginning to un unleash his holy wrath on the sinful people of this earth. And we've seen it before, like the story of Noah, Sodom and Gomorrah, the Babylonians, right? God has unleashed his wrath in certain moments in history, but all of those are nothing compared to what we're going to see. So, <clears throat> it's going to look like for a few chapters here that Satan is winning this struggle. But here's the good news. As the church of God, we won't even be here. In fact, the church is not even mentioned after chapter 3 of Revelation until you get to chapter 19, 20, and 21. It's not even mentioned. We're gone. Doesn't that just make you happy right there? Let's just give thanks to God that we're not going to be here. Hello. Nevertheless, the greatest awakening in all of world's history will happen during this time of tribulation. And millions will be saved, including, of course, the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. And so they will not be touched by these trumpets of judgment either. But all the rest of the people certainly will be. Now, there's a few terms we need to make sure that we understand before we dive into these trumpets. First of all, we need to remember that the scroll that was opened, chapter 5, uh, that, that who was worthy to open the scroll? Who, who opened the scroll? Jesus, that's right. He's the only one worthy, all right? He's the one who, un, un, uh, who broke those seals. He's holding the scroll, which is the title deed of all creation. Now, you're going to see in chapter 10, another scroll shows up. I believe it's the same scroll. But until then, I just want to remember that scroll word is an important one. Secondly, you're going to hear a lot of mentions of angels. Now, angels are really important because they're messengers of God. 
They are created spiritual beings who do not have a physical existence like us. Maybe we can do a whole sermon series on angels one day because they're fascinating beings. They have no birth. They have no death. They're spiritual beings. They're not made of flesh and blood. They are, and then there's good angels and then there's bad angels. We refer to bad angels as what? Demons, that's right. And oftentimes they're depicted as rather sissy or weak in, in paintings or in, uh, uh, or, you know, people, people putting them up as little naked babies floating on a cloud holding plastic harps and heavenly juicy cups or something. But they're not like this at all. In fact, angels are incredibly powerful beings. Remember in, in, Second, Kings, in Second Kings, the story of, the, of Snacherib and the Assyrians? One angel took out the entire Assyrian army, 185,000 warriors. One angel. You don't want to mess with an angel. When I picture an angel, you know what I picture? Honestly, the rock with wings. That's what I picture. (laughs) I don't know why, but that's why I look at it, you know? But uh, these things are incredible. They're they're amazing beings. And 73 out of the 188 mentionings of angels in the New Testament are found in the book of Revelation. Lots of angels in the book of Revelation. He uses these agents to unleash his wrath on earth, and they're used to deliver God's messages to God's people. And of course, lastly, trumpets. Now, in in the New Testament and the Old Testament, you rarely see trumpets used for musical instruments. You know why? Because they were used to call the people to action. They were used to call the people to worship, and they were also used to call the people to war. You remember Jericho, right? The battle of Jericho in the book of Joshua. God used trumpets to knock the walls down. In Joel chapter 2, he uses the trumpet to call people to repentance. In Amos chapter 2, he uses the trumpet to call people to war. Trumpets are used over and over and over again in Scripture, and then you see them, and I don't know if that's going to make it or not, stay. So far, it's staying. <laughs> okay. So, did you see what I did there? Yeah. Okay. The Greek term for trumpet is salpinx, all right? And in the New Testament, especially in the book of Revelation, it's used like you would use a, bu- a bugle on a battlefield. It is a call to action. And so, we get to the first trumpet. The first trumpet has to do with weather. Look at the first trumpet. All the vegetation is struck. In verse 7, the first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Can you just imagine what this would look like if, all, if a third of all the trees and plants and vegetation on this earth just burned up? We saw footage just last week of the Canadian fires, and, and you can see over here just a picture of what that would. Can you imagine if one third of the world looked like this? No grass. Can you imagine the, 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 just the, 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 the downfall of this? Like all the, all the, um, the, the fallout with, with all the animals being, being killed, with all the, the, the ecosystem being completely messed up. What it would do to the environment. I mean, good grief, we had foggy days here in Lynchburg just from fires in Canada. Can you imagine if one third of the earth was burning? Man, this is not your everyday average forest fire, folks. This is completely devastating. And believe it or not, it's just a partial judgment. It's just one-third. There's still two-thirds of the earth left standing. So it's not a full judgment. It's just partial. Things are going to get worse. But look at the second trumpet. Then God, the second angel, sounded his trumpet, and something like a great mountain, could it be a volcano? Who knows? Burning with fire was thrown into the sea. So this massive burning mountain falls into the sea and a third of the sea became 
blood. Now, three-fourths of the surface of the earth is covered in seawater. So if one-third of all of the oceans is blood, can you imagine what this would do? And of course, the Bible tells us all third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Bye-bye Norwegian cruise lines. There's no more happening. This is a disaster. Can you imagine the fallout? The cruise industry, the shipping industry, the, the fishing industry, the restaurants and hotels that border all the, all the, 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 the beaches and all the, it's a domino effect. So it's a massive, massive effect that this would have. Not to mention the fact that instead of going to the beach to hang out on the water, you're looking at blood. Wow. And yet it's still just a partial judgment, not total. Look at the third trumpet, wormwood. Then the angel sounded a third trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. That's a familiar name, isn't it? C.S. Lewis called his protege in, in his book, Screwtape Letters, Wormwood. It's a plant that's very bitter to the taste, and it does have some health benefits, but taken the wrong way and with the wrong dosage, it can lead to many significant health problems that's very toxic because it has a toxin within its plants. It's called fujone, and it's very, very poisonous. Again, we've seen something familiar in the Old Testament to this moment right here. It's called the first plague in Egypt. Do you remember that, when God contaminated the water supply in Exodus chapter seven? So we've seen this before, but now it's on a much bigger scale. And then all the other trumpets, like all the other trumpets, this is just a partial judgment, but it comes from heaven, which means it's coming from God. None of this is an accident. God is using his majestic power to get the attention of the people on earth, and yet they still don't repent. Now look at the fourth trumpet, the world's. Look at verse 12. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. This closely resembles the ninth plague that God sent to the people of Egypt. Do you remember that, when he darkened the skies? Amos prophesied about this moment. Joel also prophesied about this moment. But this darkness comes as a precursor to the demonic activity that's going to follow next with the fifth trumpet. It also causes a drastic change in the atmosphere. Can you imagine? Darkness everywhere. A huge decrease in the temperature of the world. No more global warming. This is global cooling, right? So we see in these first four trumpets a reminder of an ancient judgment from God and a future one. We look back at the plagues of Egypt and now we look at what God is going to bring. A future one, of course, is much more devastating. God is making his omnipotence known with these judgments. Can you just imagine the massive destruction that all four of these trumpets would cause? The outcry, the fallout of multiple industries, the economic just disaster. And then look at verse 13. And I looked and I heard an angel, some translations say eagle, flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpets of the three angels who are about to sound. Like I said before, if you think it's bad now, it's about to get a lot worse. These last three trumpets really begin to usher in the very end. Look at the fifth trumpet the first woe of the, of the three woes. So there's trumpet number five, six, and seven. We also call them the three woes, all right? The first of those woes, the fifth trumpet, wicked warriors. 
Then the fifth angel sounded in verse nine of chapter, first one of chapter nine, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. Now this is not the same star as the fifth, as the fourth trumpet. This is actually a metaphor for a supernatural being. This is undoubtedly, without a doubt, the prince of darkness himself, Satan. So John sees this star falling from heaven to earth, and it's Satan himself. And to him, now this is a very key word, key phrase, was given. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Now, the reason I love that phrase is because if the key is given to him, that means somebody else is holding the key, and he's allowing Satan to have this. And who would that be? The Lord Jesus Christ, God Almighty, the one who holds the title deed of the earth. So he's allowing Satan to have this key to the bottomless pit. Don't ever forget that. Satan may be the prince of darkness that rules and reigns and has authority on this earth now, but he won't hold it forever, folks. God's got the key. God has it. Verse two, and he opened the bottomless pit. So Satan is given the key, he opens it. Now this is the most horrific, scary moment, I think, in part of, in, in one of the most horrific moments in the entire book, right here, because that bottomless pit is opened up. It's this bottomless abyss. Now, is it hell? I don't believe it is yet. I think this is just this bottomless pit within the bowels of the earth, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, so the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the, of the pit. You know, how, you know what I picture when I, when I read that? I picture going through New York City at times, like when it's cold outside, and you see that smoke coming from the manholes. You know what I'm talking about? And you see all that smoke coming from the... That's the way I think it's going to look, except way more, right? So this smoke is coming from this pit from beneath the, 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 the surface of the earth. But then here comes just this horrific vision. Then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth. And to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. And they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth, or any green thing, or any tree. Now, we've already lost a third of all the vegetation, right? But now these locusts are commanded not to harm the vegetation. Now, who's doing the commands there? I believe God said, you can't do it. Now, it's interesting because locusts, that's what they eat, is vegetation. That's what they eat, is plants, right? And you see this, of course, another plague in Egypt when God sent the, the, the locusts in chapter 10 of Exodus. So these locusts have come, but I believe that these are not actual bugs, but rather demons. Because they're not eating the, plant, the, the plants and the vegetation, and they're causing much, much destruction. So could it be that even though, and, and this is widely believed, by the way, by other scholars, that could it be that these locusts are not locusts at all, that they're just demons? And, 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 look, and look here at the, at the, at the back half of, of verse four. So they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Remember, there's this massive revival that's gone on. There's millions of Christians on the earth during the tribulation, and yet these locusts cannot harm them because they have a mark or a seal on their forehead. And you might say, well, I thought only the people that had the mark of the beast had a mark on their forehead. No, God marks his own believers too. Verse five, and they were not given authority to kill them. Again, notice that God is in control. He's allowing this to happen, and he's giving them authority to do some things, but not giving them authority to do other things. But instead, they are given the right and the ability to torment these people for five months. Now, it's interesting to me that it's five months because the typical lifespan of a locust is five months. 
Now their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. And in those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. Folks, can I ask you, who holds the power of, of life and death in their hand? Does Satan? No, only God. Only the Lord. He holds the keys to death and life. These people will be so miserable that they want to die, but God won't allow death to take it to them. Isn't that interesting? Because, you see, most of everybody's lives, we do everything we can to avoid death. And yet, things have gotten so bad that they're begging to die. Don't ever forget, folks, that God is the one who numbers your days. He's the one who decides how long we live. So until God is through with you, you can live a fearless life. Not irresponsible, but fearless. I remember sitting in the back room with Dr. Falwell one time, and, and we, had, uh, we had had an interesting night the night before because he had said something on a TV show, and it ticked a bunch of liberals off. And, and uh, that next morning, we're sitting in the back room at church, and he was getting all kinds of death threats. We had a little more police presence that morning than we typically did. <laughs> and we're sitting in the back room, and of course, as the worship pastor, I was pretty nervous because uh, I was thinking, well, if they miss, they're going to hit me because that was the back in the day when they sit up there on those chairs by, by the platform. So I said to Dr. Falwell, I said, do you ever get nervous about this stuff, these death threats? And like only Dr. Falwell could, he just laughed. He said, oh, I'm just stirring the pot. <laughs> and now he just, he just laughed. And I laughed nervously. <laughs> and then he got real serious and he looked me right in the eye, Mark, and he said, I want you to remember something, son. Until God's through with God's man, you're invincible. He really believed that. And I really believe it's true. Not irresponsible. But if you're a godly person, living for him, doing everything you can to be the person God wants you to be, I promise you, he's got you in his hands and he's not going to let you go until he's ready. Your life is invincible. That ought to make you feel pretty good this morning. Now look at verse 7 of chapter 9. The shape of the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. And on their heads were crowns of something like gold and their faces were like the faces of men. And so for the next few verses, and for the sake of the time, I won't read them all, but he describes what these locusts look like. They have the power to hurt men. And they had a king over them, verse 11. He was the one who is the angel of the bottomless pit. Their king is Satan. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek his name is Apollyon. Now, that may, name means destroyer, and I think it's a very clear reference right here. Now, listen closely to this. It's a very clear reference right here from the Apostle John towards the current Roman emperor, Domitian. Now, remember, John is a prisoner on the island of Patmos as a result of the Roman emperor, Domitian. Domitian claimed he was the incarnation of Apollo the Greco-Roman god of, among other things, prophecy. Domitian would look into the false god uh, Apollo and he, would, and he would fly ravens to attempt to foretell his own future. Unfortunately, he was unable to foretell or even present, prevent his own murder. You would think he would have saw that coming. While at the same time, the king of kings and the lord of lords is foretelling John, this disciple who was persecuted and exiled by Domitian, he's telling John the very future of the world. So John uses images and language that would have very much resonated in the hearts of Jews and Christians in his day because he's, he's using Roman and, 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 and uh, illustrations that are appropriate for the people of that day 
And even though they would equate much of what he was saying to their current plight under Roman rule, this is also a very clear message for the things to come. You see what he's doing. John, in the wisdom of all this, God has granted him this incredible wisdom to use modern day vernacular to explain what's gonna happen, not just in his day, but in days to come. So in verse 12, one woe is past now. Behold, still two more woes are coming after this. Good grief, how much worse can it get? Oh, it gets worse. Look at the sixth trumpet. The second woe, the wreckage. And then the sixth angel sounded. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound to the great river Euphrates. Now we just heard about four angels last week. Those were good angels. These are not. These four angels are demons who were cast from heaven along with Satan's. They're high-ranking de demons, like his generals. God is right now keeping them in prison until the appointed time. I love the fact that, he is, that these angels are not going to be released until God says they can be released. <laughs> it's just amazing to me, over and over and over again, how the vernacular and the words in this book remind us that God is in control. But they've been bound near the great river Euphrates. Now, that river Euphrates is an important uh, little word for us here, and it's an important uh, geolo geographical location because so much happens in the world around this river. It started with the Garden of Eden. It's one of the four rivers that flow through the Garden of Eden. But more than that, it's always associated with God's judgment. We have, I think, an, an image of this river, and you can see where it flows. It's, it's kind of in the red right there. You see that? This river flows 1,740 miles. But look where it flows, down through Syria, down through Iraq, right in the heart of where all the trouble comes from, right? From day one, when God kicked Adam and Eve out of Eden, there's been trouble around the coastline of the Euphrates River. The first sin was committed around this river. The first murder was committed around this river. The Tower of Babel was built next to this river. Babylon itself was built on this river. Now here's the interesting thing. In Revelation chapter 16, the Bible predicts that the Euphrates River will be dried up. And because of this, it will allow an army of 200 million soldiers to cross from the east to the west as on their way marching towards Jerusalem, which would eventually become the Battle of Armageddon. Now look what's to the east over there. You got Russia, you got China, you have all these lands. Now, I personally believe that the dragon that the Bible talks about in Revelation is, is, is China, but I don't know. We'll have to see what happens. Uh, but it is an entering fact that even now, the Euphrates River is drying up. Did you know that it is 60% less water in the Euphrates River than it was a century ago? So over the last 100 years, we are beginning to see the very end times right before our very eyes. Yet another sign of the times, right? Verse 15, so the four angels, these high-ranking demons who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now we've already lost one-fourth of mankind. Now we're gonna lose another third. Now, Pastor Jonathan 
wonderfully went through these numbers last week. I'm going to review them. Eight billion people. If the church is raptured, which we believe it will be, 2.6 billion leave the earth. That leaves 5.4 billion people left behind to endure the tribulation period. Well, one fourth of the people are killed by the horse of Hades, that pale horse. That leaves, uh, that's 1.35 billion people killed by that horse of Hades. And now another 1.3 billion are going to be killed by these four angels and their 200 million man army. So now we've lost almost half of the world's population at the time of the tribulation. Almost half of the world will be wiped out completely. 2.6 billion people. Can you imagine? And now these horsemen ride in on their horses and then the Bible for the next several verses describes what the horses look like. 200 million of them and they wipe out one third of the world's population with three different types of plagues with fire, smoke, brimstone and of course their tails are like serpents and they do massive harm to mankind. But here's one of the saddest verses you'll encounter in this entire book, verse 20. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. Wow. Possibly the saddest words you'll ever read. After all this massive destruction, after all the signs that God Almighty has sent to mankind, they still don't repent. Folks, I, I, I just have to stop right here and just look at your own life. God will send you lots of warnings about your life. He will send people into your life. He will send scenarios, circumstances, disease, heartache, whatever it might be. Is God trying to get your attention? Just like he will be trying to get the attention of the entire world. God uses moments in your life to get your attention. Is he doing that right now? Look at your life. Evaluate where you are. Is God trying to get your attention? And yet, don't be like these people in Revelation 9. Don't refuse to repent. Folks, repent. Over and over and over again in the book of Revelation, the Bible says repent of your sin. And today's a perfect day to begin that. Why not today? So after chapter nine, we get to this place where there's a little lull in the action. And it's a beautiful little chapter that is sort of a recommissioning of John. I saw another mighty angel, chapter 10 says, coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud. Have you ever heard that? You've heard that, right, in the book of Exodus. God, God's presence was revealed in a, in a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. Another reminder of God's promises and provision. By the way, the rainbow is God's idea. Always will be, always has been. And his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. Another picture of the book of Exodus. And he had a little book open in his hand. Maybe small in size, but its impact is enormous. I, look, I liken this book to like a virus, like the coronavirus. It's small, but yet has massive impact on the world. And this angel comes down to earth, and he sets his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the land, and he cries with a loud voice like when a lion roars. It's a roar of triumph, a roar of victory, and this message affects all the earth and the land and the sea. It's this all-encompassing message, and when he cries out, seven thunders utter their voices. Now, that means they're speaking, they're saying something, but here's something very interesting in chapter 10, verse 4 that happens. And when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, 
This is the words of John. I was about to write them down, but, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them down. Now, we don't know what these seven thunders said to John. And he was about to write it down, but he is told by God not to write it down. You know, there are certain mysteries about God that we will never know or understand this side of heaven. And I think that's okay, don't you? What does Deuteronomy chapter 29 say? Verse 29 of Deuteronomy. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. But there's certain secret things that we're just not going to know. God's kept it from us, and that's perfectly fine. He's God. Verse 5 of chapter 10. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his heaven, hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. Now we've come through the first six trumpets. Now this little lull in the action is this angel coming down to tell John, the end is coming now, we're not gonna delay. All these things that you've seen, now it's gonna go into rapid pace, one thing after another. There will be no more delay in the coming of the Lord. What a moment. <laughs> He's made this oath, this absolute certainty that this is the end of it all. There's no more asking, how long, Lord, until you pass judgment on this land? How long until you return? All the prophetic messages of the prophets and the apostles will now be complete. They'll be completed in just a short little while. And right now, we're living in this delay. God keeps delaying his coming so that you and I would repent. But there's gonna come a day when he does not delay any longer. God up to this point has held back his wrath and these end times until now so that we might reach as many people as possible. So let your heart be focused on reaching people with this message of the gospel, not in fear over what's to come. You have nothing to fear about what's to come. And verse seven, but in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when it's about to sound, the mystery of God will be finished as he declared to his servants and his prophet. And then he says, John, I want you to, Take this scroll. So John takes this scroll and he says, eat it. So John eats the scroll. I know, that's a little weird, isn't it? Although I used to eat paper when I was a kid. So <laughs> but uh, he eats this scroll. And the angel says, it's going to be sweet to the taste, but then bitter in your stomach. If any of you are lactose intolerant, you know exactly how that feels, right? Another Old Testament reference, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, they both ate the scroll of God. In other words, digest this word. Take it in. And it's sweet when you take it in, but there's a bitterness to it because it also reminds you not just of his grace, but of his judgment and his wrath. So it comes with a price. Judgment and condemnation will come to the unbelievers. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So John is recommissioned here at this little lull in the action to continue to write down what he sees and hears and to continue to preach the gospel even after this vision is complete in his life. Now, this is moment one of a three-part interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. The second part of this interlude comes with the two witnesses in the first part of chapter 11. Jonathan is going to spend time tomorrow, I mean, uh, next Sunday, talking to you about these witnesses. So we're not going to go there. We're just going to go to the third part of this brief interlude before you get to the seventh trumpet and the third woe, which is where that then opens up the seven bowls of wrath, and that's when everything kicks into high gear and we see the end of the world as we know it. Now, these first two woes have been pretty ugly, pretty scary. 
But the last woe is the scariest of all because it actually goes from chapter 11 all the way to chapter 19. All the things you've heard about, the Antichrist coming to power, all these things, it's, it's, it's just hang on. It's going to get real interesting coming out. But before the last and final judgments or this final woe begins, I think it's pretty neat right here that heaven just takes a praise break. I was in a church in Houston, Texas one time, and uh, we got to having this little worship moment, and then she got into, this lady came up and she did the announcements. And she said, you know what? She said, when you are at work, you can take a work break. Some people smoke and they take a smoke break. And then she said, but I don't see anything wrong with a praise break. And that band tore into this praise break and we, they, they just sang and danced for 15 minutes. It was the funnest, it was the most fun I think I've ever had in church. Of course, I was like, wow, what's going on? But it was so fun to watch and be a part of that little moment. And it's the first time I'd ever heard that phrase, praise break. And that's exactly what happens in chapter 11. After all this mess with all these trumpets, and all these judgments, they take a praise break. The seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, chapter 11, verse 15, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Does that sound familiar to you? Yeah, Handel's Messiah quotes this very verse. And he shall reign forever and ever. The kingdoms of our Lord have become the kingdoms, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of the, our Lord. In other words, hey, this is good as done. This thing is over. Just like a young Mike Tyson walking into a fighting ring, you knew he was going to win. It was probably going to be by knockout. All you wondered was how long is it going to take for him to knock this guy out? You remember those days? He was a terror, like a wrecking ball. But you knew he was going to win, and sure enough, he did. It's just a matter of when. You had that much confidence when he would walk into the boxing ring. You can have that much confidence now. And even though it may seem a little bleak, I promise you, you're going to win in the end. So as we close today, can you just go with me in your mind's eye to October 13th, 1960. We're at Forbes Field in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It's game seven of the World Series between the Pittsburgh Pirates and the New York Yankees. It's been a wild top of the inning because the Yankees were behind and they scored two runs to tie the score, nine to nine. Now it's the bottom of the ninth. Bill Mazeroski steps up to the plate. He's wearing number nine. Bottom of the ninth, scores tied nine to nine, then number nine steps up to the plate. And at precisely 3.36 p.m., with the count one and oh, Mazeroski slams a high fastball deep into left field. It clears the wall, and the Pirates win the World Series. It's the only time a Game 7 has ended in a walk-off home run in World Series history. Well, folks, it is 2023, June 25th. We're in Game 7. I believe it's the bottom of the ninth. And time is short. 
And it may feel like you are losing. It may feel like you're not on the winning side. And when you look at culture and all that's happening and feel incredibly frustrated, when you look at the starvation, the selfishness, the psychotic behavior, the violent outbursts, the wars, the sexual abuse, the substance abuse of our confused culture, it may get you a little down and a little depressed. But you, my friends, are the church of the almighty living God. And the gates of hell itself will not prevail against his church. So I'm here to tell you this morning that your future is not just held in good hands, it's held in perfect hands. You are held by the hands of the Almighty. You are secured by his infinite power and his indescribable love. He will not let you go. He does have a plan and a purpose for your life, and he has prepared a home for you in heaven. God is in control, and the church is going to win. It may take some time. It may take some disappointment, some pain, and maybe even a little destruction, but I promise you, folks, we win. God wins. So do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Isaiah 41, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The I don't know about you, that just makes me want to shout a little praise because when you look at chapter 11, verse 16, that's exactly what all of heaven does. The 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and they worshiped God, saying, we give you thanks, O Lord Almighty, the one who is and the one who was and the one who is to come because you have taken your great power and you have reigned. The nations have become angry. Your wrath has come and the time of the dead, they will be judged and that you should re- Reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and you should destroy those who destroy the earth, those who have unbelieved. And then verse 19 says, the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in the temple, and there were lightnings, and there were noises, and there were thunders, and another earthquake, and great hail. It is very clear to me, folks, that if you are a child of God, that you are his friend You will receive his grace and his mercy. And if you are not a child of God, then you are his enemy and you will receive his wrath. But one day, folks, every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's best that you bow now before you get in front of his daddy than when you do stand before his daddy. So as his children, even in the chaos, God hears you. God cares for you. God is, always has been, and always will be in complete control. He's not going to forsake you. He'll always keep you. And if you know him, you're protected from all this. So will you stay faithful, believer? Your reward is coming. Now, as our story of Revelation continues next week, you're going to see that it even gets worse. But hang on. Just hang on. And in the meantime, I think we should close with a little praise break. Let's just praise the Lord. Praise him for who he is for what he's done and for what he's going to do. Let's give him the praise that heaven gives him in chapter 11. With altars open, I'm just going to ask you to stand. And I'm just going to remind you that this is an altar. And if you need to come and repent of your sins and get your life right with God, today's the day. Don't delay. Maybe you just want to come and worship. But before we leave today, I just want to ask you to join us. Can we... Can we start at that bridge? Let's sing it again. We sing this earlier, but we'll sing it again. Heaven will prevail. Yeah. Strongholds will be moved.
Yeah. Spirits will be silenced and cower at his role. I know my God is for me, so what have I to fear? For nothing will deny him the glory that is his. today, I just want you to be reminded that we've talked about all the things that are to come, but that doesn't excuse us for not living how we should live now, right? So live for Him, and if you just happen to hear something that sounds like this, that means Jesus is coming back and you better hurry and get ready. <laughs> all right, God bless you. Have a great week. <laughs> Thank you for worshiping with us today. We're so glad you joined us. If you prayed to receive Christ today, we'd love to hear from you. We want to help you as you begin this new journey of faith in Jesus Christ. Send an email to the address on the screen, pastor at trbc.org. Likewise, if you've never accepted God's free gift of salvation, the forgiveness of sins made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus, but you'd like to know more, we're here to help you. Just reach out to us and we'd love to tell you more. Our mission at Thomas Road is to change our world by developing Christ followers who love God and love people. If you'd like to help us fulfill that mission by giving to our ministry, go to the link on your screen and make your contribution today. Help us help others with the life-changing truth of God's love.